It won't come as a surprise to you, but I am not a fashionable man. One of Beth's biggest projects after we got married was to help me start to slowly let go of my teenage fashion choices, and I have to admit I am still very much a work in progress. Now, I don't think it was all my fault. Mum taught me early on that your trousers go at least as high as your belly button, if not a little higher. And that little fashion nugget stayed with me right the way through school until a very good friend took me to one side and told me I looked like an idiot. I've also inherited my dad's reluctance to throw things away. All of my pyjama tops are Commonwealth Games branded t-shirts that I was given by work last year. And several of the t-shirts in my wardrobe are at least 15 years old. I don't think anyone who's known me for any length of time can fail to have noticed that I could probably do with looking a little harder in the mirror before I walk out the door. And our passage this evening warns us that we can be a little bit like that in a spiritual sense, but that that is no laughing matter. Week by week at church, hopefully day by day in our quiet times, we look at ourselves through the lens of God's word. And as we do, there is no question that the Bible exposes things about us that are out of step with his will. There are behaviors and thoughts and attitudes that we need to develop and encourage, as well as problems to address, neglected habits and sins that we've brushed under the carpet. The Bible will point these out to us at different times and in different ways. But as we go to James this evening, he's concerned that we can often fail to act on what we're told. In these verses, James warns his readers of the risk of looking through the Bible's lens and doing nothing about what we see. He likens it to looking at yourself in a mirror, but not addressing the issues it shows you. But before we get stuck into the detail of it, it'll help to understand something of the book as a whole. As the name suggests, most commentators agree that the letter was written by James, the brother of Jesus. He was known as the Bishop of Jerusalem, James the Just, and he was an important leader in the early Jewish church had a reputation for being a devout believer, deeply committed to God's law and to prayer. He was eventually martyred for his faith. And the opening greeting of the letter in verse 1 says, to the 12 tribes scattered across the nations. And it suggests that it was written to the early Jewish Christians spread out across the world. And in Galatians 2, Paul tells us that James, Peter and John went to minister to the circumcised the Jews. His letter and the contents of it suggest that the Jewish church was made up mainly of poorer people who were being oppressed by society's wealthy anti-Christian elite. It seems that many in James's audience were looked down on, out of favour with society, persecuted through the courts and denied economic opportunities because of their faith. So I don't think we need to try too hard to imagine that this letter will have things to say to us today. It's a letter from a pastor to his flock, spread out and struggling. In it, James passionately urges his readers to endure, to carry on in the faith. He writes out of love for them. 14 times in the book, he calls them brothers and sisters. And he writes out of a concern that they might give up or opt for an easier kind of faith, which we'll see tonight is actually a faith at all. It appears to be a collection 
or a summary of James's teachings, and it's full of different appeals and instructions. And as a whole, it can be a little bit difficult to follow through. There are, however, a few big themes, topics that James keeps coming back to. He wants to make sure that his church members aren't overwhelmed by their hardships. He spurs them on, encouraging them to stand the test, to persevere through trials, so that their faith grows and matures, so they last until the end, receiving the crown of life promised by their Lord. He is also guarding against the world getting into the church. James understands that Christians living in the world are constantly bombarded by its influences, being told what to think or believe. He knows that it's easy to start to adopt those views, to adopt that wisdom, and to check the Bible's instruction against the world's ideas rather than the other way around. In his letter, he warns his readers against being polluted by the world and challenges behaviour like reverence of the wealthy, reckless speech and double-mindedness. And the final big theme in the book is James's counter-argument to what seems to be a twisted understanding of Paul's theology of being justified by faith alone. Steve recently covered the right doctrine in Galatians 4. And we'll spend some time on that tonight, because it seems that the believers there were applying his teaching incorrectly, using it to justify an inactive, cold, dead religion. So let's read tonight's passage, in which James tells us about living faith. It says James 1, 21 to 26 there, but um, I looked at my last sermon as I was writing this and realised it was 45 minutes long. So uh, we're going to cut out the middle bit and we're going to skip from the end of chapter 1 through to uh, verse 14 of chapter 2 and read 14 to 26. It's page 1,213 in the small print and page 1,880 in the large print Bibles. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, They will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Then moving on to chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, 
and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and that his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And in these verses, James challenges his readers to ensure that the word they hear grows into obedience and action before helpfully working through some practical examples. In the second part of our passage, James goes back to the principle, pushing us to examine our faith deeply in the light of God's word. As I said, I've skipped that middle section. If I happen to find myself well ahead of time, we'll have a brief look at that. Um, But I can see the clock today, so uh, I promise you're not going to be here all night. But we'll start by looking at the theology, getting our heads around James's definition of true faith and his reasons for believing that living faith actively obeys. Living faith obeys God's word. That looked a lot bigger on my laptop screen. Um, I realise that you're not sat as close as I am. Sorry, I'll read them out to you. In these verses, James encourages us to accept the saving word of God and then to do what it says. He challenges us with the truth that genuine faith will result in obedient activity in service to our God. If we don't approach the Bible looking to obey and apply it, we need to examine ourselves critically, and we need to question if we've really understood and accepted Christ's sacrifice for us. But before we get into the meat of the passage, it's just worth noting right at the beginning in verse uh, 21, the word therefore, uh, most commentators seem to agree that it actually links back to verse 18, rather than relating to verses 19 to 20. So that first verse, think of it something like this. God chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Understanding this gives us some critical context because some of James's critics argue that he preaches a kind of salvation of works but he's clear from the beginning that it's God who gave us new birth in Christ and that's the context we can take the rest of the passage against so that we make sure we understand it correctly equally in verse 21 and again in chapter 2 verse 14 where he says the word which can save you the word save isn't talking about being saved in that kind of initial commitment to Christ sense. He's referring to the final salvation, if you will, the ultimate completion of God's plan, when the believers are glorified with Christ in the new creation. When he says it can save us, he's saying it can help us persevere until the end. So his instructions aren't a way for us to earn salvation, 
but a response to our new birth that proves the genuineness of our commitment. We can be encouraged then as we read the rest of the passage and work through it, that the instructions in it aren't oppressive demands, but ways for us to joyfully live out our life given by a loving Heavenly Father. So starting in verse 21, which you could think of as the tagline for the whole passage, James calls us to get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in us which can save us. The phrase get rid is the same as the one that's translated throw off in the famous verses in Hebrews chapter 12 where he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. It speaks to discarding dirty clothing. It calls us to cast away the morally wrong and the evil that holds us back from following Jesus. To get rid of those ways of life that we used to follow and pursue that entangle us and distract us as we follow our Lord. And as we turn away from habitual sin as we're used to, James calls his readers to humbly accept the word planted in you. And the language here points us to Jeremiah 31 and the promise God made. He said, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And the sense of that planting is something that's been put in and Douglas Moo helpfully explains it for us. He says that by describing the word in this way, James reminds the believers that the word of God is not done with them after God uses it to bring about new birth. That word, that Bible, becomes a permanent, inseparable part of the Christian, a commanding and guiding presence within. So rather than the initial acceptance of God's word when we're first saved, James is talking about an ongoing acceptance of God's word as the perfect, holy and binding instruction for how to live life as God designed it. And as we'll see in more detail, it's that willing, consistent effort to obey that is the characteristic that proves the genuineness of our faith. So James opens this section by saying, God has given you new life. So get rid of the filth and evil you're used to and humbly accept his word as your guide and authority so that you reach the finish line and the new creation. But James doesn't leave it there. It seems that the church in James's day were adopting an easier understanding of the principle. If we look at verses 22 to 25, we get this picture and most of us on the way out of the house will look in a mirror and give ourselves a quick once over, I assume. Perhaps some of us could do with taking a little bit longer over it. Maybe others could do with spending a little bit less time. But most of us do it to some extent. Now, if you're off to work or to the doctors or anywhere else, and you look in the mirror and see you've got toothpaste on your face or your hair's a mess or one of your kids' faces was covered in tomato sauce when they gave you a hug, you wouldn't just carry on, would you? That'd be daft. And James says it's the same when we come to God's word. But it's not just about how carefully you listen. The NIV's translation here is a little bit unhelpful because it says listening and then it says looking intently into God's word in verse 23 and 24. 
Interestingly, the ESV swaps it round. Um, but really, if you look at the original language, both phrases there are used to describe looking carefully. And commentators agree that James isn't really trying to draw a contrast between how those two people are looking. The difference is in what they do after looking. Their response is what matters. It's a little bit flippant, but as the saying goes, you can stand in a garage, that doesn't make you a car. You can sit here in church week after week, month after month, year after year. You can listen carefully, you can take notes, you can memorise the verses, you can remember the key points. You can speak to people afterwards, debate the finer theological details of the message. You can go to Tim or Steve at the end and take care to encourage them with a word of thanks, highlighting something specific so they know you are listening. You can do all that, and those are genuinely helpful and encouraging things to do, but unless you then go and apply them to yourself, unless you start to act on what you heard, obeying God's word, you are like that person who looks in the mirror, sees cereal all over their shirt, and walks out the door anyway. More than that, if you aren't responding to what you hear from God's word, you are deceiving yourself. Tim said this morning that it's impossible to truly know God and enter into fellowship with him and not be transformed by the relationship. James reinforces his point in verse 25 because he switches from talking about God's word to talking about his law. These things aren't pleasantries or platitudes. They're not optional or nice to have. This is right at the core of what it means to be a Christian. And he goes on to give us a negative and a positive example of what he calls pure and faultless religion. Firstly, anyone who considers themselves religious and yet does not control their tongue deceives themselves and their religion is worthless. Now, James only mentions it in passing here, but discipline in our speech is a huge part of his letter. And I'd encourage you to read the rest of the book and see exactly what he says. But for now, notice what's at stake. If we don't keep a tight rein on our tongues, our religion is worthless. On the other hand, religion that's acceptable to God involves looking after orphans and widows in their distress. These are practical, real-life things that we have to do. But then he goes beyond that, doesn't he? Keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world is about our attitude and the state of our hearts. But a few times there he talks about religion and what does he actually mean? I think that a lot of us get uncomfortable when someone starts talking about religion. We start thinking of a, a stale, inoffensive, go-to-mass at Christmas kind of Christianity. It's a nice label and it connects people to a group of other people. And it just makes up a small, comfortable corner of someone's identity. And the word James uses for religion does describe the outward worship of a god or gods. In fact, it was often used to refer to the kind of ritual worship we might typically associate with it. But James is turning that on his head. True religion means obeying the word in thought and deed. It means obeying the living word of God, which is sharper than a two-edged sword, which judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 
living out the holy scriptures breathed by the ruler of the universe, which rebuke and train, which correct and equip. In his Sermon on the Mount, as he takes those historic Ten Commandments and expounds them from rules to follow to attitudes of the heart, Jesus shows us that obeying the word goes far, far beyond outward religion, how it requires fundamental changes in our innermost being, from do not murder to do not be angry, from do not commit adultery to don't lust, from ritual rule following to your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. If our life's direction is not to obey God's word, our religion is false. I think there are two ways we can think about doing that. Firstly, whenever we hear God's word, be that a sermon, our regular reading on our own, even a verse of the day notification on our phones, Whatever it is, we look to apply that to our lives. The Holy Spirit will emphasize different things at different times so that we're not overwhelmed. But make no mistake, if you come to God's word, there will be something for you to do. It could be dead straightforward, a command or instruction. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to be angry. But it could also be an attitude that Jesus portrays that we should aim to develop in our behavior and our thinking, or a promise that can embolden our life of service or our prayer. It might be, as is often the case in the Psalms, an example of an emotional response to a situation that frees us to bring our own feelings to God, helping us communicate with him. Whatever it may be, the point is that reading God's living, breathing word will always have something to say to us and we need to be careful to apply it. Secondly, we need to actively turn to God's word to receive his wisdom on particular issues. How should you feel about stem cell testing? Read what the Bible says about the sanctity of life. Want to get married? Look at what the Bible teaches us about marriage, its responsibilities, its challenges, its blessings. Doing your performance review at work? Study the biblical principles for how we should order and prioritize our lives and how we should think about it. Electing new deacons? It's too late, we prayed for him this morning. But you get the idea. Whether passively or actively, we should be taking what God reveals to us in his word and obeying it. Now, while James encourages us to do the word, And he makes the point that this goes much deeper than outward religion. In chapter 2, he makes it clear that actions are required. He shows us that living faith results in action. As we read these verses earlier, you might have felt uneasy, thinking that James's stance on faith and deeds sounds a lot like the salvation by works of the law that we were talking about in our memory verse earlier. It's like James is comparing two people, one who has faith and one who does deeds. And it almost contradicts what he wrote in chapter one. So I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but just look at these three verses and see exactly what it is that James is saying. Verse 17, he says that faith by itself, 
if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. How about verse 20? Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And again, verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. He's not describing deeds as some additional step to justification. He's describing them as the inevitable consequence of a living faith. Inevitable to the extent that if a person has no deeds, their faith must be dead. It's meaningless. It is unable to bring that person through the final judgment to God's eternal glory. And if you consider the context, the idea that James is addressing people who are opting to take an easy route, who are choosing that comfortable, inoffensive kind of faith, faith in a box that doesn't impact their lives, then that stance makes sense. He's not pitting faith against deeds in a battle of what saves people. He's contrasting two different kinds of faith. Faith that allows people to be passive, to claim it without taking steps to live it out, which we'll see is no faith at all, against faith that results in active service, that drives people to serve the God in whom they trust. So we'll work through these verses and we'll try to fully grasp his message. It's worth noting the change in his writing style here as he begins an argument with himself. He inserts this imaginary third party for the benefit of his readers. He's pulling out all the stops to drive this point home. In verse 14, he sets the scene with the big question. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Just like in the beginning of the passage in 121, the word save here refers to the final salvation, the completion of our spiritual journey when we're glorified with Christ. And this hypothetical question he starts with isn't that hypothetical. As we've mentioned, it seems to describe the view adopted by some of the people in James's church. Maybe they're driven by the notion that different people are given different spiritual gifts. We don't know. But regardless of how the question came about, he begins his answer with this helpful picture summarising his point. Let's imagine, hypothetically, that my brother Josh comes home from uni and tells me that the cost of living crisis has completely swamped him. His bills have gone through the roof, his rent's gone up, his books are extra expensive, and the sum of it all is he's got no money to feed himself this week. Now we're all feeling the pinch but I've been lucky enough to compensate a little bit. And while Josh has burned through his savings, I have a little bit set aside. And when Josh comes to me, I am understandably concerned. My own brother can't eat. I start saying things like, I'm so sorry. Things have gone mad, haven't they? I can't believe how expensive everything is. Even the fruit and veg is running out. It's terrible. Don't worry. I'll pray for you. And then I pootle off home, have some pizza and some Ben and Jerry's, and watch the TV. How genuine was my concern, really? Do I really care about my brother's plight if I have the means to resolve it, and yet I walk away? I think we'd all agree that no, my care can't be real if it doesn't lead me to action. And that is the point that James is making. Faith, if it doesn't result in actions, is no faith at all. And so he launches into this argument with this imaginary third person. In verse 18, 
again, the translation in the NIV is a little bit, little bit challenging um, when it says, you have de- I have deeds, you have faith. I think the sense is really, some people have deeds and some people have faith, as if they are specific gifts that aren't necessarily given to everybody. They're arguing that since they don't have the gift of deeds, you can't really expect them to do anything. And James's answer is just sarcasm, isn't it? His point that genuine faith and obedient practical action are inseparable. He drives it, drives it home further in verse 19. Even good theology on its own is not enough. You see, even the demons understand that God is the one and only. And it spurs them to some kind of reaction, even if it is just shuddering. It seems to be more than some of the people, in the, some of the people claiming to be Christians in James's church. We can know and say all the right things, but that alone is not enough. And he concludes his argument with evidence from the Old Testament in the shape of two case studies. And they're interesting choices. You'd think they're opposite ends of the social spectrum. Abraham, the father of God's chosen people, a giant of faith on the one hand, and Rahab, a non-Jewish prostitute who lived in a nation judged by God for its evil on the other. And first, James makes the point that Abraham's faith was proven, it was confirmed, verified by his commitment to God's instruction. Hebrews says that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his one son, his only son, the son through whom God had promised to fulfill his promises to Abraham, because he trusted that no matter what, God would fulfill that promise, even if he had to bring Isaac back from the dead to do it. And Rahab didn't purchase God's affection by protecting the Israelite spies, but she was saved by the faith she described in Joshua chapter 2. And she says, I know that the Lord has given you this land, for the Lord your God is God in heaven and on the earth below. Her actions, she risked her life to help his people, demonstrated the authenticity of her faith. It was by their actions that their faith was proven real. Both Abraham and Rahab were considered righteous, not because they earned it, but because of their genuine faith, the reality of which is shown in their remarkable active obedience. And John Calvin helps us to understand this as he compares Paul's teaching on salvation by faith alone to James's teaching in these verses. He says that, As Paul contends that we are justified apart from the help of works, so James does not allow those who lack good works to be reckoned righteous. Good works don't buy us justification. But no one who is not growing and not working to do good can be justified because their behaviour proves the emptiness of their profession of faith. Steve Hopes often said, when people ask whether or not they're saved, that it doesn't matter about the profession you made years ago or your baptism. The thing that matters, the thing that shows whether you are saved, is whether you are living for Jesus today. Are you living for Jesus today? Think about the answer you just gave yourself. Does your life reflect it? Can you point to how that commitment is making a difference in your day-to-day lives, in your attitudes, in your affections? If not, ask yourself this. 
what is directing how you feel, think, and act? Because something is. Something, or some things, has taken the place of God's word as your authority and your guide. And if that describes you, you need to turn back to Jesus and ask him for his forgiveness for your fickleness. You need to recommit to him and ask him to reorder your mind and your heart so that his word forms the foundation for your worldview, and so that his wisdom is your ultimate authority and direction. Because when you do, you will find that obedience to God's word reinforces genuine faith. Abraham's faith in verse 22 being made complete means that it was matured or made perfect. Like James says at the beginning of chapter 1, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. He carries on in verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because that person, having stood the test, will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Genuine faith requires us to act. But when we do, we find that our faith grows and develops as our experiences reinforce our beliefs. Rahab saw Joshua lead Israel through the River Jordan and watched God tear down the walls of Jericho. Abraham experienced God's provision as he found a ram as he was about to sacrifice Isaac, as well as a whole book full of other ways. And I think those of us who are Christians will have experienced this to some degree as well. Doesn't your soul feel more whole, more at peace and more joyful when your relationship with God is where it should be? Haven't we all experienced the torment of hiding a sin we weren't ready to forego? And then the relief through tears when we finally give in and bring it to Christ? Be encouraged, my brothers and sisters, because stepping out in faith is not only what we are instructed to do by God's word. It is also what is best for us, now and forever. Now I can see you're all on the edge of your seats waiting to hear your sentences. How much longer are you going to have to sit here? Don't worry, I can see the time. So we're going to stop there for tonight. We'll recap very briefly and we can respond in song as we close. What does your life show you about your attitude to God's word? These verses show us that our attitudes and our behavior prove how we think of the Bible. Do you come to God's word with a submissive heart? Do you trust that it, written by the creator God, contains the most fundamentally, fundamentally and unerringly correct wisdom? Is God's word the benchmark against you which you judge all of the wisdom? Or have you let things become twisted? Do you find yourself reading the Bible and getting confused because it doesn't reflect what the world is telling you? Is the Bible the binding authority over your life? Or do you treat God's law as if it just describes an ideal situation? James's letter challenges us not to be passive or lazy in our pursuit of the Lord Jesus. In fact, James warns us that if there is no fruit in our lives, if we aren't interested in obeying and living out God's word, our attitude puts the reality of our faith in question. These verses should make each of us stop and reflect on ourselves, on our lives and on our hearts. 
Are we truly following the Lord? Or have we begun to rest on old confessions and on idle proclamations? Does your life really reflect your faith? Tonight's passage confronts us. Even the language is argumentative. Clearly, Christians have been struggling with this since the birth of the church. So while it is right that we take this to heart, that it breaks our hearts as it exposes our shameful idleness and idolatry, we can be encouraged. Because God doesn't say that if we fall short, it's over. 1 John 1 verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So take heart. Get back up and go again. We'll pray and then we'll sing two songs, one encouraging each other to trust and obey in the Lord and the second reminding ourselves that while we need to work hard and earnestly serve our King, he is the one who provides us with the strength we need. Lord God, we praise you because you are a holy God. You will tolerate no sin and all things will be brought to a just conclusion. You are wise beyond our understanding and you are powerful to reach into even our lives. Every single one of us are under your wisdom and your control. You know us and you know the experiences we are going through. Lord, we confess that all of us at one time or another have been nominal at best and at worst we've been outright disobedient. And we confess, Lord, that we desperately need your grace. We haven't treated the Bible as we ought to and we have allowed the world to twist our perspectives. Forgive us, Lord, on the behalf of your son. We thank you that you still speak to us through your powerful living word, that you give us grace and the opportunity to repent. And going forward, Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit's help to convict us and give us understanding. We ask for the strength and courage to obey you. Amen. We'll sing when we walk with the Lord and then, O church, arise.
therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>